Father, our hearts have a tendency to grow bored with the beautiful, to take lightly the weightiest subjects, to receive eternal truths, but have it make no earthly difference. What an assault on your holiness to casually receive what made your dear son face the cross. Father, this is another Sunday, one of 52 this year. We could walk in and walk out without it making any difference. Or we could walk in, have you walk us through the text, and have it impact our lives. Have it point out our sin. Have it lead us to repentance. Have it dry our tears and increase our strength. Have it feed our souls. Let it be one of those Sundays, Lord. Do this among us for the praise of your glory. God, I would rather die. I would rather die than preach this text without the Holy Spirit's power. I am going to do my human best. But I'm depending completely on your spirit to make the book live. During my preaching, would you fill the gaps of my deficiencies and help it to be a demonstration of the power of God? I'm handling holy material, precious doctrine, glorious theology. God, I want to do it justice. I do not want to speak of glorious truths in a detached, cold manner. Help me not to speak about gospel fire while sitting on an iceberg. Help us corporately, collectively to encounter you in the text. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Today, we are walking through Revelation chapter 15. And 16. Now let me put those chapters in context of the whole book. The book can be divided into groups of sevens. There is a prologue, chapter 1, and then we encounter seven churches. There is an interlude, chapter 4 and 5, then we encounter seven seals. There's another interlude, chapter 7, and then we encounter seven trumpets. There is yet another interlude, chapter 10 and 11, before we encounter the seven signs. The next interlude is chapter 15, which we will exposit today before we cover the seven bowls. The structure of the book of Revelation is sabbatical. My chart here only takes you to chapter 16, but there are 22 chapters in the book. If I expand the chart, you would find this pattern continues. An interlude before a seven. Following the seven bowls is another interlude before you reach seven visions. There are six groups of seven followed by a final Sabbath. God's people are in the new heaven and the new earth. Is there any surprise to you, church, that the book of Revelation consists of seven <laughs> sevens? 
It's important to always keep before us while studying this book that it was written to seven local churches in modern-day Turkey. The churches had actual pastors and members, and they actually met on Sundays for worship. They were real people with real struggles, working real jobs and facing real persecution. The book of Revelation was written for us, but not to us. While the book has much to say to us, the book's meaning must be anchored in what John first wrote to those people. So that means Revelation cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. And that means to understand the book of Revelation, you need the Old Testament, not a newspaper. Another interesting little tick with apocalyptic literature, and especially here in Revelation, is that this material is not linear. It's not tight chronology. There is an earthquake, and everything is destroyed. Oh, wait, then there are mountains? I thought everything was destroyed. All the grass is burned up. Oh, on the next page, locusts are told to not harm the grass. I thought all the grass was burnt anyway. I, I could pile on you other examples of stars and trees and rivers, but you get the point. It's not what happens next, but what John sees next, and it can all be out of order. This is not historical narrative, beloved. Apocalyptic literature may also show the same thing from different perspectives. The theologians call this recapitulation. It repeats itself and talks about final judgment in chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 14, and again here in chapter 16. The same theme may be examined again and again, which is what we have in the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. Recursive parallelism. It's bringing the readers to the end of history again and again. The three sevens give us varying camera angles of the same history consummating events. In other words, I do not believe that there will be seven seals and then seven trumpets and then seven bowls. I do not think this is walking out of chronological order of judgments. Uh, these are three series of seven to depict the same period of time. They each have matching conclusions, identical. What we have in our text with the seven bowls is John backing up, retelling the story again from a different perspective. God unfolded history through the seven seals. God unfolded that same history through the seven trumpets. And he will do it once more through the seven bowls. Revelation is not in strict chronological order. There is repetition. Seals opening, trumpets sounding, bowls pouring. All walking out the end of history. The end of the world. And you may be thinking, wow, <laughs> this is heavy. I don't know if I can take another sermon on the world ending, Kyle. I mean, you kind of just want to put your hands up in the air and say, God, I get it. I'm picking up what you're laying down. I'm thankful for divine revelation, but I'm not sure I can handle any more of your divine revelation. Keep it a mystery. Surprise me, Lord. I don't want to know. Now, some of you crafty, intelligent listeners might be asking, Kyle, 
if I've already heard the sermon in the seven seals and I've already heard the sermon in the seven trumpets, why do I need to hear it in the seven bowls? If it covers the same material, I don't need to hear the same sermon three times, do I? Well, friend, that sounds like a question you need to ask the author, not me. God will and the bowls circle back around and cover everything in the seven seals and the seven trumpets. But while doing it, he will reveal a little more. He will take you deeper into judgments and deeper into how it's going to play out. So here's what I'm thinking. I want to look at Revelation chapter 15 and 16 biblically. Then look at them theologically. Then look at them practically. I want to give you this grid so you can follow my flow. You type A people, you type A's, you're going to love this. You ferocious note takers. The rest of you are like, man, get away from the outline, get me into the story. I'm going to walk through chapter 15 biblically. We will answer the question, what does it say? While honoring the genre apocalyptic literature. Then I will walk through chapter 15 theologically. Answering the question, how does it fit in God's unfolding drama of redemption? How does the little story fit into God's big overarching story? I will then walk through chapter 15 practically. Answering the question, what should I do as a result of this text? Chapter 15, walk through it biblically. Then circle back around, walk through it theologically. Then circle back around, walk through it practically. I'll do that with chapter 15, and then I'll repeat the same process in chapter 16. Let's orient ourselves to these two chapters. Chapter 15 is in heaven. Chapter 16 is on earth. Chapter 15 is pouring out the bowls from heaven's perspective. Chapter 16 is pouring out the seven bowls from earth's perspective. Let's get after it. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. We've experienced the wrath of God in fractions so far. In the seven seals, it was one-fourth of the world facing the wrath of God. In the seven trumpets, it was one-third of the world facing the wrath of God. In the seven thunders, this group of judgments that John wasn't allowed to write down, this is speculation, but if the fractions continued, if the literary structure proceeded, it would have been one-half of the world. The, the big message of the fractions is this. You still have time to repent. These are all partial judgments. These are all limited disasters. It's a bitter foretaste. Don't remain in defiant unbelief. Embrace this Christ. In the seven bowls, there are no more fractions. The wrath of God is completely expressed. In verse 1, the seven bowls of wrath have been poured out on the earth. Past tense. The world has ended and the non-Christians are now facing final wrath in hell. The text says the wrath of God is finished on earth. See, I, I can test verses 1 through 4 of chapter 15. They, they fast forward you past chapter 16. 
Look at verse 2 of chapter 15. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Let's take a step back from this. What is this body of water? This is not a small fish pond. This is a sea. Vast and expansive. It's transparent because it's glass. It's a sea of crystal. My Revelation scholars, is this the first time we've seen the sea of glass? <laughs> Certainly not. We saw it in chapter 4 before the throne. Immediately we know the setting for chapter 15. We are in heaven before the throne of God. Who was able to cross the sea of crystal and make it through the flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder proceeding from the throne? Who was able to approach this God from whom the angels hid their faces? Who was able to take the scroll from his hand and open the seals? Only the Lamb. We are once again in heaven before his throne. But the sea is different this time. It has a reddish tint. It is a red sea now. Not a, not a transparent sea. And that's because the judgment of God is swirling in red anger before his throne. Fire in the Old Testament was a metaphor for divine judgment. Fire is always a metaphor for divine judgment. The tranquil sea is now a raging, swirling fire. Who is by this red, swirling sea around the throne? Who is standing by the sea? The redeemed of all ages. What were the seven churches each told at the end of their letters? Do you remember? To the one who conquers. God shows these seven churches. All the conquerors will be around the throne. Those who resist the dragon and follow the lamb wherever he goes. The original readers are now seeing themselves. The conquerors. Along with all the conquerors from all the local churches throughout history. And what are they doing? They're watching final judgment be delivered. What are they doing while they're watching? Verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying... Now let's, let's pause here. We'll get to the lyrics of the song in a minute. I, I just want you to see that they are singing. Are they singing two songs? An old hymn by Moses and a new modern hymn by the Lamb? No, it's one song. Where were Moses and the Lamb connected? Passover. God's acts of redemption call for a song. This song is about the Lamb. In heaven, they're singing Lamb-centered songs, Christocentric songs. Now, this does not mean they, they sing the exact same words as Moses because it says it's the song of Moses. We will see that clearly when we check out the lyrics. Verse 3b. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. There is a statement about God in the first line and a title for God in the second line. This happens two times. Great and amazing are your deeds. That's a statement about God. O Lord God the Almighty. That's a title for God. Just and true are your ways. That's a statement about God. O King of the nations. That is a title for God. 
The song continues in verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Every phrase of this hymn is taken from the rich vocab of the Old Testament. They are singing a, a future tense song, but they are living it in the present. All nations are around the throne, worshiping. Chapter 15 consists of three separate visions. And all three visions are introduced by the same phrase. Then I saw. Verse 1, then I saw. Verse 2, then I saw. Verse 5, then I saw. They may not be translated the same way in your English translation, but they are the exact same in the Greek. In verse 1, we have an overview. The seven bowls have already been poured out. In verse 5, the author goes back and unfolds verse 1. He expands upon it. Verse 1, the bowls have been poured out. Verse 5 shows you what happened right before the bowls were poured out. To illustrate this, if I wrote a life story and I wrote it in verses, then I might say in verse 1, I got married. And then in verse 5, I might back up and explain that by saying I met Sarah freshman year of college. She was from Canada. I was from North Carolina. I visited her parents. She visited my parents. We got engaged. Then we married after junior year of college. I make a statement and then later back up and explain the events that led up to that statement. That's what's happening in verse 5. So let's look at it. After this I looked, in the Greek it's literally, then I saw. After this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. These are the same angels that are in verse 1. They are arrayed in splendor, long flowing robes which point to the sacred nature of their office. They administer the judgment of God. They pour out the wrath of God. Is this the first time that they at the command of God have poured out the wrath of God? I don't think so. The wrath of God was poured out at the command of God one other time. That time, it was not poured out on all people, but on one person. Not poured out on God's earth, but on God's Son. All those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb will not face the wrath of God. Verse 7. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God, from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The wrath finished. Verse 1 and verse 7 end with the same word. They describe the same event. We looked at chapter 15 biblically. Now let's look at chapter 15 theologically. What we have in chapter 15, I want you to get this, is a new exodus. Moses led God's people out of Egyptian slavery. Immediately after the exit, that event 
was used as a framework of reference for how God delivers his people. That little story of Exodus was designed to picture the big story of Exodus. The old Exodus points to a new Exodus. Moses led God's people to the Red Sea. Remember what happened next? God split it for them. They walked across on dry land, and when they all reached the banks on the other side, they saw their captives, their captors pursuing them. And then suddenly God allowed the waters to crash on them. Lapping up on the shore were the dead bodies of the Egyptians. And what did God's people do on the other side of the Red Sea? They shouted for joy and sang songs. That whole event in Exodus was a shadow. Chapter 15 of Revelation is the reality. God's people are here again standing on the banks of another red sea. Swirling with fire. They've crossed the Red Sea and they're now watching as their enemies are drowned before them in judgment. God's people standing on God's side of the sea once again. This is the new Exodus. Chapter 15 biblically, chapter 15 theologically, chapter 15 practically. Let's answer this question. What should I do as a result of this text? You need to realize that the eschatological day of the Lord is inevitable. Those of you here that are non-Christians, quite a few this morning, like it is every Sunday. Those of you that are, that are non-Christians, you're living in the gap between threat and fulfillment. What is deliverance for the people of God is disaster for everyone else, including you. You will drown in the judgment of God just like the Egyptians. Your only hope is to run to the Lamb and follow Him wherever He goes. In other words, repent and believe Non-Christians, you are living in the gap between threat and fulfillment. Christians, you are living in the gap between promise and reality. You've been promised a Sabbath rest and it's coming. You've been promised a new heaven and a new earth and it's coming. You've been promised that God will redeem you and he will. This letter was written to seven local churches. This was a reminder to them. I know where you are. I know you're being chased. I know you're trying to escape. Egypt, one day you will stand on God's side of the Red Sea and you will see your persecutors drown in my judgment. Dear faithful, suffering Christians, hear me. They abused you. They cheated you. They beat you. They enslaved you. And they faced absolutely no repercussions. Dear one, God may not pay at the end of every day, but he will pay on the last day. You face their wrath, but they will face his wrath. Chapter 15 is in heaven. Chapter 16 is on earth. Chapter 15 is pouring out the seven bowls from heaven's perspective. Chapter 16 is pouring out the seven bowls from earth's perspective. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. 
Do you hear that voice? Do you hear the voice in verse 1? It is a loud, authoritative voice. This is the voice of God the Father on the throne. This is not a tentative voice. Uh, should, should we pour it out? What, what do you think, fellas, talking to the angels? What, should we pour it out? I don't know. What, what do you think? I'm just not sure. This is not a tentative voice. This is not a hesitant voice. Oh, man, I, I, really, I really wish we didn't have to pour the bowls of wrath out. This is not a suggestive voice. Well, I mean, if you like, angels, go ahead. I mean, you, you could pour it out. If you won't, it's, it's in your hand. No. This is a commanding, confident, authoritative voice. Begin the bowls. His patience, which lasted throughout the ages, comes to an end. The command to pour out the liquid wrath comes from the throne. Verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Church, we're going to go through these bowls quickly because they are poured out in rapid succession. These bowls are not five-gallon buckets being dumped on the earth. Nor are they cereal bowls being poured out. They are shallow saucers, not very deep, as to be poured out quickly. The content of the first bowl causes some type of painful sore on the bodies of non-Christians. These loathsome, stinking sores take over the body. Festering wounds oozing with pus. It's incurable. Verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The content of the second bowl is poured into the sea. The salt water coagulates into blood like the blood, the verse says, of a dead man. It's, it's thick. This will no doubt cause economic hit. You will not be able to buy shrimp again or salmon or tuna or crabs or clams. This seems to be some type of supernatural act beyond scientific explanation. Now this may sound like deja vu to you. You've, of course, seen this before. During the trumpets, one-third of the sea became blood and one-third of the fish died. No fractions here. All the sea, all the fish. Verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. The content of the third bowl turned all the fresh water sources into blood. And this doesn't seem to be coagulated blood, but runny blood. Ponds and springs and wells became pools of blood. It's a toxic wasteland of water. There are no more clean sources for drinking water. 71% of the earth is covered in water. The earth spilled Jesus' blood, and now they're covered in it. 71% of the world bloody that happened during the trumpets as well the third trumpet trumpeted and suddenly a star fell from heaven and turned one-third of the river springs and lakes bitter the fresh water supply was smitten in verse 5 and 6 we have a little pause between bowls the angel is apparently in charge of the waters he has a conversation with God 
who's on the throne. John recounts the verse, verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. This is more than a conversation. He's singing to God. He's praising God. He's singing a hymn that praises God for his wrath. This is a hymn of doxological judgment. He continues singing in verse 6. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Now this is a unique verse. A sinless angel says to God the Father, they got what they deserved. It was a reminder to these seven persecuted churches, the people beating you will get what they deserve. The punishment fits the crime. They spilled a lot of Christians' blood and God will make them drink blood. The angel is praising the justice of God. Your sentimentalism your sentimentalism can hurt you in studying the Bible. This is not something to rail on God for. It is something to praise God for. Well, Kyle, if I were God, I wouldn't handle it like that. If you were God, you failed the second grade. Pipe down and let God be God. God's holiness is the framework for interpreting the bold judgments. If you do not have a grasp on his holiness, you will struggle with the bowls. The altar then joins the angel in singing. <laughs> this altar is personified. You can do that in apocalyptic literature. Verse 7, And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. Verse 8. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. The contents of the fourth bowl are poured out on the sun. And it caused skin to burn. More than just sunburnt. It, it, was, it was second and, and, and third degree and fourth degree burns. Aloe will give you no relief from a divine burn. The searing heat scorched their skin. And notice in verse 9. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Burned and blistered, they blaspheme God's name. Those in the end will not repent they will curse God and blaspheme him just like their master does. We've seen four bowls poured. When the first bowl is poured, God assaults the land, people. When the second bowl is poured, God assaults the sea. When the third bowl is poured, God assaults the fresh water. When the fourth bowl is poured, God assaults the light of the sky. Revelation students, <laughs> does that sound familiar? This is the same order as the trumpets. The only difference, no longer one-third, now all-thirds. Verse 10, 
the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People, people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The fifth bowl might be psychological torment. They were plunged into darkness. Physical darkness? Possibly. Psychological darkness? Definitely. The five bowls do not soften the non-believer's heart, but hardens them. They remain steadfast in their unbelief, in their rejection of God, in their refusal to repent. They would rather chew their tongue off than have their tongue give glory to God. Verse 15. Verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, church, the, the Euphrates is the longest river in, in southwest Asia, and it stretches 1,700 miles from Syria to Babylon. Suddenly, it stops flowing because the sixth bowl evaporated the river. But this is not a literal reference to the river in Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. It's symbolic. The Euphrates River held historical and contemporary meaning to the first readers. The original readers, they knew the Euphrates River as a place where trouble comes from. They knew it was the ancient boundary between Israel and her ancient captors. They would say things like, Egypt came across the Euphrates. Babylon came across the Euphrates. It had historical meaning. To the first century mindset, this river was a source of oppression and a place of exile. But it also had contemporary meaning to where they were living in the Roman Empire. The, the Parthians were just across the river and Rome couldn't subdue them. Rome took land north, took land south, took land west, but couldn't take it east because the Parthians were there. One historian wrote, Rome lived with the threat of Parthians crossing. They had the greatest cavalry in the world. The, the Euphrates was always the symbol for holding back impending judgment, restraining enemies. But what's happening with this bull? God is now seducing the enemies to invade by drying up the river. All obstacles are gone now. Let the kings of the east come in and let them plunder. But just like the sixth trumpet, the sixth bowl is talking about demonic enemies, not Parthian enemies. Verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. According to Leviticus, a frog was an unclean animal. So it's, it's picturing these unclean spirits. The, the Euphrates dries up and allows three demons to make their way across the dry riverbed. And, and we know these three. They are the unholy trinity. Satan and his goons. The, the text speaks of their mouth three times. And, and the repetition is purposeful. They deceive with their mouths, their message, their false gospel. The three frogs croak, disseminate information. Now, the demons are frogs here. But in the locusts, but they were locusts in the trumpet judgments. Verse 14. I'll bring it all together in a moment. Verse 14. 
For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, the only category some of you have for Armageddon is, is Bruce Willis's movie. I, I want to give you a biblical category. The picture here is that the dragon, Satan, is assembling his army for battle with the lamb and his army. Armageddon is, is a battleground like, like Gettysburg, but, but for Israel. More than 200 battles had been fought in that plain. Satan is preparing for the battle of Armageddon, where he will make his final push, where, where the frog demons gather. Now, knowing apocalyptic literature, I do not believe geography is the main concern here. The main concern is opposition to the Lamb. You've heard a lot about Armageddon, and 99% and, um, and of it's not from the Bible. Verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the Bible from the throne, came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. Church, the final bowl is poured and the contents affect the atmosphere. The seventh bowl depicts the end of the world. His wrath has been poured out to the last dirty dregs. Verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Now this is, this is not a new apocalyptic storm for us. We've seen it before when the end of the world was depicted in the sixth seal and the seventh trumpet and now in the seventh bowl. They all refer to final judgment. His wrath has previously been restrained but it's no longer restrained, it's unleashed. Verse 20. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. Now, how much damage would this do? You know how much damage marble-sized hell can do. Imagine 100-pound hell. The biggest hailstorm ever recorded the biggest hell stone ever recorded was eight inches in North Dakota, a little shy of two and a half pounds. Imagine 100 pound blocks of ice. That's what God is throwing. That's the weapons in his divine arsenal. Everything is pummeled and pulverized. In fact, the next time you experience a little hailstorm, remember that is a simple preview of a final one. How would the non-Christians respond to this hailstorm? By repentance? No. They will shake their fist at God one last time. Rather than recognize their rebellion, they just keep on sinning. Now there are two responses to the judgment of God in this chapter. Did you catch them? The angels give you a righteous response glorifying God. The non-Christians give you an unrighteous response, cursing God. 
And perhaps this whole hell storm is simply a demonstration of Leviticus 24. When those who blasphemed God were to be stoned to death. Church, is this the first time we've seen hell fall from heaven in Revelation? <laughs> no! We saw fire and hell fall from heaven during the first trumpet. It burned up one-third of the trees, all of the green grass, and one-third of the land. Now, it's all thirds. After walking through chapter 16 biblically, some of you skeptics are like, wait a minute, Kyle. I got a lot of problems with that chapter. Number one, the third bowl said it turned all water and the rivers into blood. That was the third bowl. Now the sixth bowl said it dried the water out of the Euphrates River. How can it dry water when there was no water? That's one. Two, if all the water sources are contaminated, people and animals die in a very short period of time. You would not be alive to face the 100-pound blocks of ice falling from heaven. You need fresh water. Three, this fourth bowl, I mean, what is that about? Did the angel make the sun go closer? If the sun gets any closer to earth, it doesn't give you sunburn. It burns you to a crisp. The whole planet will engulf in flames. You can't mess with the normal rhythms of solar system rotations. So take that, Kyle. Three problems. Try, try to explain that, Jack. I got you. The Bible is wrong. Whoop, whoop. Okay. First, my name is not Jack. And when you finish doing your little happy dance, I'll explain to you, you have nothing. John is writing pictures, not scientific prose. It's poetic language to illustrate a bigger truth. Scientific precision is not the burden of apocalyptic. The book aims at the imagination. Psalms aim at the heart. Romans at the head. Revelation aims at the imagination. Apocalyptic literature, I've told you before, is for romantics, not engineers. You need to go back and listen to the first sermon in this series and learn a little thing called apocalyptic genre. You engineers need to become more romantic. It's a, it's a visionary genre. Well, Kyle, explain to me exactly what it's going to look like at the end of history, the end of the world. Explain to me that. Well, well, I can't. This is all symbolic of things that are going to happen. Apocalyptic literature describing the destruction of the world in tantalizing ways. Tom Schreiner, for instance, says the outbreak of sores is not literal, but symbolic. Pastors, see, church people, I'm going to let you into a little pastor life here. Pastors argue about the finer details of this all the time. And, and, and they get off into name-calling and assuming motives. It gets ugly quickly. But they're preachers, so you don't have to worry about it getting physical. They can't throw down. They just talk big and insult from a distance. This is what it's important to remember. The reality is no less gruesome than the symbol. Let me repeat that. The reality is no less gruesome than the symbol. We looked at chapter 16 biblically. Now let's look at it theologically. You can't miss the Exodus language. This is a replay of the Exodus plagues. 
There's unmistakable similarity between the plagues God sent to deliver Israel from Egypt and the plagues God sends to deliver his children from the ultimate Egypt. I'll call this the return of the plagues. God will replicate the Egyptian plagues 1,500 years later. God, God recapitulated the Egyptian plagues. Blood and water systems, Exodus 7, 17. Plague of sores, boils, Exodus 9, 9. Hail falling from the sky, Exodus 9, 22. Frogs, Exodus 8, 2. What does God call the bowls? In verse 9 and in verse 20, about six times, he calls them plagues. Why crouch the bowl judgments in Exodus plague language? Because the last Pharaoh and the final Egypt will be destroyed. God will bring his people out. And if you want this Exodus, you need to follow the greater Moses. God's true Israel will experience the ultimate Exodus. In fact, remember back in Exodus, the, the slaughter of the firstborn in Egypt? Where were God's people? Safe behind the blood of the lamb. His blood counts for you. Theologically, there's not only Exodus language, but there's also creation language. What is all this symbolizing, picturing? The seven bowls give us a complete breakup of the landscape. The natural order necessary for life is unraveling. The created order is coming apart at the seams. God himself is ripping apart the fabric of his creation. This is decreation. A progressive dismantling of creation. When you see the order of creation in Genesis, you have the same order of decreation here. Decreation must precede recreation. In the text, the flight of the mountains and islands speak of the flight of the old creation to make room for the new creation. The coming of the new requires the elimination of the old. The whole book is sabbatical. He's bringing us the final Sabbath. He's bringing us to the new creation. Chapter 16 biblically, chapter 16 theologically, now chapter 16 practically. We want to answer the question, what should I do as a result of this text? I skipped one verse in chapter 16. Did you notice it? It was between the sixth and seventh bowl. The whole verse is a parenthesis. It really seems out of place in the flow of argumentation, but, but it's verse 15. And it says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. I love this. Jesus just breaks into the story and speaks out of nowhere. Jesus hasn't said a word in chapter 15 or 16. But here he just kind of breaks in and reminds the readers, as the world is falling apart, I'm not going to leave you. I'm coming after you. Now, there's a lot of talk about Christians not going through some of these tribulations. But this verse puts them smack dab in the middle of them. In fact, I know Christians were still there because during the bowl of sores, the sores only went, the text pointed that out, on those who had the mark of the beast. Just like the boils in Egypt only went on the Egyptians. It was a sermon 
Let my people go. Stop persecuting my people. What, what people? The ones without the sores. You put sores on my people. I put sores on you. Jesus gives his followers instructions on how to live during this tribulation. How are they to live in it? Keep your clothes on. Now look, that's good advice for anyone. But the world is unraveling. The church is being persecuted. Christians are a minority. And all you got is keep your clothes on. This is the apocalyptic beatitude. Blessed are those who keep their clothes on. Jesus doesn't tell his church, it's summertime. Sun's out, gun's out. Or any other version of that saying. Jesus says, I don't want to catch you running around naked. I want to catch you fully clothed. Now, this is not actually speaking of clothes, of course. It's talking about eschatological shame. He wants you to possess a kind of spiritual preparedness. He's not going to send you an email letting you know the time of his arrival. It will be unheralded and unexpected. How do you stay clothed? How do you stay ready and prepared for Jesus to come back? How do you not fall apart when the whole world is falling apart? How can you possess spiritual preparedness? Well, let me give you some ideas. One, repent. Repent. When you sin against someone, go to that person and repent to their face. Have a daily time of repentance to the Lord where you are looking back and evaluating every conversation, everything you looked at, everything you thought, and find places to repent. One, repent. Two, eat. Eat. Eat the Bible every day. And each time, consume it like it's your last meal. Don't be a malnourished Christian when Jesus returns. You can't, you cannot. I'm not, I know I do overstatements sometimes. I'm not overstating this. You cannot be spiritually healthy without disciplining yourself to eat the word. Repent, eat. Number three, be present. Be present. Stay in corporate worship. Don't let sports take you away. Don't let the beach house take you away or the lake house take you away. Don't let work take you away. Fight. Fight for your spiritual life to be present with God's people when they corporately meet on the Lord's Day. Now, this is the, the, the first Sunday of summer for us, meaning our kids are out of school. For some of you, next Sunday will be the first Sunday of summer for you. But I want to talk to you about summer. Some of you are here now. You will not be here in August. You will let your guard down in the summer. And that's when you'll fall away. I've seen it every summer I've been a pastor. Number one, repent. Number two, eat. Number three, be present. Number four, guard. 
Guard your intake. Guard what you watch, what you allow in the gates, the eye gate, the ear gate, the mouth gate. Now, this book was written to seven local churches. Let's think about what, how did they read this? How were these seven local churches to keep their clothes on? They were not to participate in pagan practices of the Roman culture. They were not to participate in the trade guilds that required idolatry and sexual immorality. Even if it meant they lost their job, even if it meant they had to take a lower paying job, how were they to remain clothed? Speak against the Roman imperial cult that viewed men as saviors and gods. How are they to remain closed? Continue to meet corporately on Sundays. So we answered this question practically. What should we do as a result of this text? First, keep your clothes on. Secondly, keep reminding yourself of God's love for you. Keep reminding yourself of God's love for you. People, people talk about the bowls being the final wrath of God. In a sense, yes. And in a sense, no. There's still hell. And quite frankly, God's wrath is more than just physical and psychological, which is what we have in the bowls. His wrath is also spiritual. When the bowl of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross, it wasn't just physical and psychological. The most painful part of that was what we could not see, and that was spiritual. Christian, you will never face the liquid wrath of God. That's good news. You will never face the liquid wrath of God. You will never face it. Because Jesus faced it for you. He endured that for you. You will not face the liquid wrath. But you will experience the liquid glory. Drinking with Jesus in the new earth. Keep reminding yourself of that. I, I, I want you to understand. My dear sheep. I want you to understand God is not perpetually angered at you. You're under mercy. He's not perpetually wishing he didn't save you. He has no regrets. It pleased him to redeem you. And it still pleases him to keep you. Let's stand together. Some of you that are visiting here for the first time, you're like, does this guy yell all the time? I don't, uh, it was just today. I don't know. Let's pray together. Father, you love us. We are unlovable and you love us. And I know. <laughs> and I know you smile when you view us because you see us as sinless as your son was.